Our scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 4, 18 through 25. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called to them immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Amen. A few years ago, the good folks, the pollsters at Gallup, did a fascinating survey about the church-going habits of Americans. Who goes? Who doesn't go and why? And they interviewed all kinds of people, all kinds of ethnicity, skeptics, non-Christians. But then they turned their attention to American Christians and they asked this question. They asked, what is the most important reason you're a part of a church? And here's what they said. American Christians, 24% of them said they go to church for spiritual growth and guidance. 18% said, it's my faith. 14% said, it keeps me grounded. 15% said, I believe in God. 14% said, I was brought up that way. 12% said, to worship God. And 9% said, the community. Now, there's something really fascinating, I believe, about these answers. And not just the fact that they add up to 106%. (laughs) Sure you caught that. What's fascinating about these answers is that the vast majority of these Christians, when asked about why they're a part of a church, gave answers that had nothing to do with God at all, gave answers that did not mention the name of the founder of their faith, gave answers that had nothing to do with others, or any thought of the possibility that God had some kind, any kind of plan for their lives or the world. And looking at that, you could hardly blame a a skeptic or a critic for wondering if maybe, maybe, somehow, somewhere, some of us have lost the plot. Why are we even here today? I mean, I think that's a very helpful question to ask. After all, if a ship sets sail, you know this, and gets off by even one degree, over time the ship may land somewhere it never meant to arrive, if it even arrives at all. So why are you here? I mean, why is Mosaic here? Why is this church here? And to answer that, I'd like to ask another question. What is Jesus doing in this passage? Because my heart, faith, vision, is that we would be about what Jesus is about in this passage. So I'll ask again, what's Jesus about? What's he doing in this passage? And the answer is, he is doing the same thing he has always done. He is bringing his salvation into the world. That's what he's doing. He's bringing his salvation into the world. So how can we be about the same thing? Well, to do that, we've got to be, I believe Matthew 4 shows us, a people 
The kind of people who can do three things. Number one, a people who know something, people who begin somewhere, and finally, people who can take hold of one thing. If that sounds odd or intriguing, all right, hang in there and you'll see what I mean, I hope, I hope. Number one, let's begin and let's look at how we can be people who know something and to see what that something is, I want to pick up the passage in the story here in chapter four, verses 18, 19, it says, now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, Peter, Andrew, they're casting their nets, they're fishermen, and he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Let's ask, what in the world is Jesus doing here? Because again, we saw last week, this chapter is the very beginning of his public ministry. And if he really is the eternal son of God, he would have had not just a lifetime, but an eternity to think about, figure out both his first words and his first actions. And last week we saw his first words were that he is bringing heaven's kingdom near to earth. And this week we see Matthew shows us Jesus making his first move in that kingdom plan, which is, drum roll please, his very first move in the kingdom, the bringing heaven to earth thing is, taking a walk on the beach, is that it? I mean, talking with some fishermen, strolling along the, the fisherman, with the fishermen on the beach, no, not at all. What's he doing here? Well, again, remember, Matthew's writing to who? Oh, a mostly Jewish audience who, when Jesus said this one phrase, follow me, it would have set off, it would have triggered a whole series of alarms and whistles and bells in their heads. Why? Because Matthew is showing the reader what Jesus is showing all of us and what we must know to bring his salvation into the world, which is we must know the story we're a part of. We must know. That's the people who know something. We must know this story we're a part of. What do I mean? Let's say, look, what Jesus is doing right here on the beach in this moment on the Sea of Galilee is what he, as the eternal Son of God, had been doing for centuries. Back in Genesis 7, when the world God had made had become utterly corrupt, there's no future for mankind. What does he do? Oh, he calls one person, Noah, to do what? To follow him, to leave his father's family, go into the ark, into a place he'd never been before. And if Noah did this, then he said, through you, Noah, I'll bring peace. I'll bless the earth. A few chapters later, Genesis 11, when things have grown dark again, there's a global catastrophe, the Tower of Babel. There's only idol worship in the land. It looks like God's plan for the world has come to an end. What does God do? He calls someone, Abraham, to follow him, to leave his father's family. And then through Abraham, though Abraham did not know where he would go, then through Abraham, he would bring a blessing to all the world. Every nation. A few centuries later, God's people are in slavery. Once again, it looks like God's plan for humanity is at an end. What does he do? Oh, he calls one nation now, Israel, to follow him out of their father's land in Egypt into a desert. Though they did not know where they were going. And he said, if you'll do this, I'll make you a light to all the nations. And now here we have Matthew 4. 
1,500 years later, in Jesus' day, it had been 400 years since any prophet had spoken, since God's spoken through any person. His people are being oppressed by Rome. His glories departed from the temple. It looks like his plan for them has come to an end. And what does he do? He does the same thing he's always done. The same thing he's been doing all along. He said to the fishermen, the same thing he said to Noah, to Abraham, to Israel, and to you. By the way, he says, follow me, leave your father's nets, your home, though you don't know where you're going, and I'll make you fishers of men a blessing to the nation. See, Jesus isn't just taking a walk on a beach. He's saying to these people what he said all along, I will bring my salvation story through you into the world. That's what he's doing. See, God's salvation story, aren't you glad, didn't begin with you. And aren't you doubly glad it didn't begin with me? It didn't begin with Mosaic Church. It didn't even begin with the first church in Acts. It didn't even begin with these fishermen on the beach. No, it was announced all the way back in the garden. Adam and Eve fell, came through Noah, preached to Abraham, shone through Israel, arrived in the lap of some Jewish fishermen, and is knocking on the door of your life today. Do you know the story you're a part of? If you're a Christian, and I hope you are, Here's why you're here. Here's why you're a part of any church. Here's why Mosaic Church, any church is here. You and I, we are part of bringing God's salvation story into the world, which means we have to ask, what does God's salvation look like? What does it look like? I mean, how does it show up? What forms does it take? What does it include? Let me rephrase the question in a slightly more modern way. Does God's salvation... Does it look more liberal or conservative? Does it care about social structures or saving souls? Is it more concerned with public works or private ethics? And the answer is yes. Yeah, yes to all of that. Thank you. You're my home crowd here. Yeah. God's salvation story has been, always will be, both social and spiritual. And let me show you why. Let's retrace our steps. When God called Noah into his salvation story, he didn't just put Noah's family on the ark, did he? No. He didn't just care about human life, did he? No. What else did he care about? Animal life. Yeah, read the narrative, Genesis 6 and 7. Hebrew narrative, it's notoriously compact, very few words, and yet God goes to these enormous lengths to tell and show Noah how to preserve animal life and to take all that time to explain to Noah how to save animals is basically an Old Testament way of doing a slow motion shot so you can't miss it, which it's just God shows you. He lingers over how to save his creation, which means that for some of you in particular today in the area of creation care, hmm? Animal life, you may have some level of calling in science, right? Area of preservation. That's part of God's salvation story. When God called Abraham, uh, he didn't just call him out of the idolatry of his family, did he? No. He rescued Abraham and Sarah, his wife's bodies from decay. He brought them back to how they were supposed to function. Why? Because his salvation story came through Abraham's body. And some of you, when you go into nursing, you you go into medicine, physical fitness, therapy, you're walking in your calling. 
to bring God's salvation story into people's lives. God didn't just care about Abraham's soul. No, he cared about his body. And he cares about yours as well. When God called Israel out of Egypt, what was he calling them out of? It was a corrupt political system, wasn't it? Which had grown over time to systematically exclude and oppress an immigrant people. And then when he brought them out, he broke the power of an evil economic system built on the backs of slavery. And then God called them out of a corrupt political system, which disallowed human rights, mandating babies be put to death. And therefore, when God saved, when he redeemed his people from the intolerable hell of their oppression, what did he do next? Oh, he led them into a desert where he set up what? Just and righteous systems. Ones that limited the government's power. One that honored the dignity of all citizens, gave rights to children and babies. One which commanded its people to do mishpat, justice to neighbors and to foreigners living in their midst. One that had economic controls which forbade business people from maximizing their profits in the name of a free market system. The landowners had to leave. They had to leave grain for the poor. Everyone had a day off to prove they weren't slaves anymore. And yes, when God brought Israel out, it was for the saving of their souls. His aim was to destroy every system that prevented them from truly flourishing. Why? So they could now worship him because you're not free. People aren't truly free. Until they're free to worship God, the one true God. And then when God looked back at all of that, all of that, what did he say to his people? He said, oh, my people, I have saved you. I have redeemed you from all of that. Why? Because salvation's story is an economic one, a spiritual one, social one, political one. And that's why when you get involved in economics, politics, philosophy, the arts, yes, as a church, you and I as a Christian, we are supposed to be about, if we're doing our job right, about bringing salvation's story into the world, in those environments. See, salvation, it's way more liberal than you may have thought in that it must touch speak to unjust social structures or it's not salvation and it's much more conservative than you thought because it must transform the human heart and morality and ethics and choices on the private individual level or it's not salvation see if God's salvation doesn't transform what you look at when you go home today when it doesn't transform how you express your sexuality, what you give with your money, it's not salvation. But if it stops with you and doesn't press you to free people, right, it's not salvation either. It's big. God's salvation story is broad. And that's why Paul can write later in the New Testament that Jesus is, present tense, bringing everything back to him nations back to him creation back to him and jesus here in matthew 4 he's doing it right here in this moment you don't see it in matthew but over in luke 5 same moment luke captures for us jesus goes from the beach into peter's boat peter gets in with him he tells peter to go out in the deeper water and to let down what his nets for a catch peter's reluctant why well he tells jesus he says we fished when all night and we haven't caught anything. See, net fishing in Galilee was done during the night. You didn't fish with nets during the day. The fish weren't dumb enough to go into the nets during the day. And so he's telling Jesus, basically, you're a carpenter, right? We're fishermen. We fished all night. You don't know anything about fishing at night, but we'll do it anyway, Jesus. 
And we're going to have even worse odds now during the day. You don't catch anything during the day. So then why do all the fish begin suddenly streaming toward the nets into the boat? Oh, it's not because the fishermen are there. It's not because the nets are there. It's because Jesus is there. And now for a moment, oh, a moment, it's like a Rubik's Cube being returned to its original state. Creation is coming back to its creator. In this moment, Jesus is dealing both with the human heart. Peter falls to his knees. He says, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus is redeeming and touching creation. Why? Oh, because salvation is not just dealing with social structures. It's redeeming the human heart. And it's not just saving souls. It's repairing the world God has made. Some of you may have, probably have, you've written off evangelism. Don't like it. Individualized spiritual colonialism. (laughs) You've reduced, you've shrunk Christianity to just social program structures doing good. Don't do it. Don't do it. Some of you may have reduced Christianity to only about making converts, winning people. Don't do it. If you do, you make Jesus too small, Christianity is too small, our impact, your impact will be reduced. Gospel proclamation is always both. Christians are called to do both. Jesus preaches the gospel here, and then he goes and what? Brings healing to all, and the message spread. See, salvation looks like a people who know the story they're a part of. Number two, it's also, though, it's a people who begin somewhere. How does this, how does these disciples, how does their story begin? These fishermen, where did their story begin in this moment for the people Jesus is bringing into his story? Again, he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And by doing this in the present, he's doing something these men would have understood because Jesus is calling to them to be something he's still calling you and me to begin to be today, his disciple, his disciple. Jesus is saying, therefore, you begin to play your part in my story by being my disciple. Jesus had gained a, a reputation as a rabbi. It's a, it's a word that basically means your, meant your honor in that day. It was reserved for Torah teachers, Old Testament teachers, and rabbis, these your honors, these Torah teachers, rabbis had disciples. So the rabbi-disciple thing would have been a familiar paradigm for these fishermen, but if we'll look a little closer, we'll see that how Jesus went about his discipleship with his followers was radically different. And therefore, we can see how our discipleship, how we follow him, must be as well. Let's ask, how is Jesus' discipleship different three ways this morning? First, there's a different starting point. You've got to catch this. In Jesus' day, most would-be students of a rabbi, they initiated the relationship. They chose the rabbi, but not Jesus. See, these fishermen don't come to his house and say, teach me. He goes into their world and says, follow me. And just in case there's any doubt, Jesus makes clear a little while later what happened. He says to them, you didn't choose me, y'all. 
I chose you. And this should be massively encouraging to you today because it means if you're following Jesus at any level, it means that no thing in your life has disqualified you from being used in God's salvation story. If you're following Jesus at all, it's only because he's chosen you, right? Your lack of faithfulness hadn't ruled you out yet. Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord. Your lack of character hadn't ruled you out. Praise the Lord, right? Your lack of faith, your lack of Bible knowledge, your lack of intellect, your lack of money, you name it. We've all got some sort of lack. But Jesus' call is greater than our lack. When Jesus called me as a college freshman, I was an expert in life, right? 19 years old. But I was a total hypocrite. Total hypocrite. Selfish, lying, porn-addicted, cheating, womanizer, coward. I'd do anything to get people like me. Lack of morality, lack of concern for others, lack of courage. But Jesus called me. I didn't choose him. He chose me. He broke into my life and changed me. And then when he called me into playing my part in his story, vocational ministry, I began to try to make disciples, right, uh, impact others. I was a colossal failure. The first guy I ever led to Jesus was a teammate of mine at U of H. And a week later, because he was so excited, he quit the team. I never saw him again. You know, where are you, buddy? After him, the first guy I really tried to help follow Jesus in our group was so inspired by the impact I'd made in his life. He left the group, took one of our female leaders with him, and they moved in together down the street. <laughs> Had no promise as a disciple or disciple maker. So why did Jesus stick with me? For the same reason he sticks with y'all, all right? Because he chose us, right? We didn't choose him. And for you, in the same way... To make a disciple, as Jesus commanded us to do, Matthew 28, means you also, in the same way, have to move into someone else's life. I don't know if you've noticed, I mean, people, disciples, don't just, they don't just fly onto your doorstep these days. FedEx doesn't just deliver them. UPS doesn't drop them off. Oh, you, I signed for the disciple. No. You've got to move into their life. And begin a trusting relationship. It's a different starting point. Second, there's a different saying Jesus has. A different saying, a different way of going about teaching. Rabbis in those days were always instructing in the Torah, right? And, and therefore their authority was always derived from the Torah. But Jesus, as a rabbi, was totally different, off the script. He'd say things like, the Torah says, but I say... And then he'd go off and start teaching these new things that weren't in the Torah, like parables about coins and sheep and pigs and uh, good Samaritans and lost sons and farmers. I mean, not only is he reinterpreting the whole thing, he adds commandments. Only God can give commandments. Jesus gives a new one about love. Yet Jesus does it. He's got an entirely different approach. What are his sayings showing you? He's showing you that his discipleship isn't just concerned with your outward behavior and appearance like the Torah primarily was. Now, we'll look at that more in depth next week. But Jesus' discipleship is always concerned with every last stinking motive of your heart. And here's why. Here's why it's so important he does this. American writer 
David Foster Wallace himself was a radical skeptic. He shows us why this is so important in a commencement, famous commencement address he gave not too long before he died. He said this. He said, quote, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty, sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never... And excuse me, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. And this is why... Jesus' approach to discipleship is so crucial to see. It's why it's so crucial to allow him to be your master, your teacher, your honored one, your rabbi, because he's the only master that won't eat you alive. He's the only one that won't, uh, when you give your life to him, that won't imprison you. He'll set you free. He'll forgive you. Listen, your mirror won't ever forgive you. And my mirror's brutal. Brutal. Your money... He can't heal you from an abusive past, right? Jesus is saying, see, his teaching go past the surface down into the heart, and that's why his discipleship and following him is so hard and why so many people, even in Jesus' day, quit following him. They didn't want to do the hard heart work on their motives. Do you? Do I? third way Jesus' discipleship is different. He's got a different system, a different system. In those days, the aim of a typical disciple was to become a rabbi yourself and maybe even become more esteemed than your teacher. But Jesus said, it is enough for what? The disciple to be like his teacher. And what was Jesus like? Most rabbis expected their students to serve them personally. Unfortunately, that can still be the case in churches today. Got cultures of armor bearers, handmaidens of the Lord, goofy stuff like that. By contrast, Brett's laughing. You've lived that, haven't you, our brother? Jesus was a rabbi who served. He washed his own disciples' feet. He did the most menial and disgusting, frankly, job a servant could do in that day. And then he looked up at his disciples, not down, up in their eyes and said, my kingdom, my church is about being people who do stuff like this. He's upending the whole structure, the whole system of rabbis and disciples. I mean, no wonder Peter's so freaked out when Jesus washed his feet. Jesus is tearing down the last vestige of prestige Peter thought he could cling to as a disciple of a famous rabbi. Peter's thinking, if Jesus has done this for me, what's my future? Is it this for a lifetime? It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. What was the teacher? 
a servant. As we announced a few moments ago, we're needing to move to three services uh, at the beginning of next year because God's blessed his church, wants his salvation story and some measure to come through us into the city, into the world. And we're going to need a number of service team, ministry, volunteer positions filled and going to need people to do for others what's been done for them. And that's just serve them. And right now on a Sunday morning, we've got roughly 650, 700 adults, another 250 to 300 kids, just under 1,000 people here on a weekend. There are currently about 200 of you who volunteer on roughly a once-a-month basis. And the exciting part about my brilliant math here, which is better than Gallup's, by the way, is that we should easily be able to add another 75, 100 people across our different teams. You say, well, Morgan, I'll serve when you inspire me. Or when there's a role built around my gifts and my abilities. But until then, I'll just hang back because my gifts are special. And my talents are special. Now, you don't ever say that. I'm just saying it for you. Do you think when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, that was a good use, strategic use, of his supernatural, God-given abilities? He had some special gifts, didn't he? I'd say he did. Was scraping poop off his ridiculous disciples' feet a waste of his God-given talent? Did it take an inspirational speech for him to lower himself? Or was he maybe showing you, us, that character is more important than talent? Well, listen, we're not going to arm twist. Don't eye roll me. All right. Listen, this is, this is just going to happen. This church is built on a different value system. It's one that our elders have modeled, our deacons have modeled, our staff. Many, so many of you have modeled that kingdom life is about both receiving, yes, and giving. It's about being like our master. It's enough for us. It's enough for us to be like our master, our teacher, Jesus. <clears throat> Finally this morning, his salvation story looks like, number three, One thing, people who can actually take hold of one thing. About 150 years ago, a writer named George MacDonald, maybe you've heard of him, he wrote a a great little children's book fairy tale called The Princess and the Goblin. And If you're a parent here, you ought to read it to your kids. It's a good one. Uh, The main character, Irene, is an eight-year-old little girl. She's found an attic in her house, and every so often... It's a fairy tale. Her fairy grandmother appears there. And when Irene goes to look for her grandmother, the grandmother isn't there many times. So one day, though, her grandmother gives her a special ring with a thread tied to it, leading to a little ball of thread, which the grandmother herself will keep. And Irene says, but I can't see it. I can't see the thread. The grandmother says, no, the thread is too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. Now listen, says the grandmother, if ever you find yourself in any danger, you must take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your forefinger upon the thread, follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful, says Irene. It will lead me to you, grandmother, I know. Yes, said the grandmother, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. 
And a few days later, Irene's in bed. Again, it's a fairy tale. These goblins get into her house. And she's frightened, but she remembers to take off the ring. She puts it under a pillow, finds the thread, begins to follow it. But to her shock, dismay, it leads her straight into a cave of goblins. Inside the cave, the thread leads her into a worse place, up to a pile of stones. And the stones look like a dead end. And the thought struck her, well, maybe I can follow the thread backwards and get out of here. But the minute she tried to follow the thread backwards, the thread vanished from her touch. See, the thread only worked going forward, but forward led her into a pile of stones. So she begins to tear down the wall of stones in front of her. And suddenly, she hears a voice, the voice of her friend, Curdie, who has been trapped in the goblin's cave. And she removes the rocks enough to make an opening. And Irene keeps going deeper into the cave. Curdie, though, starts to object too. Where are you going? Why are you going that way? That's not the way out. That's where I couldn't get out. I know that, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. Because Irene and Curdie follow the thread, they were both saved in the end. And they rescued everyone from the goblins. And, but for a while, it looked like their story was at a dead end, didn't it? Dead end. It looked like the way that her thread letter was only to a bigger pile of problems. And it would have been except for the thread she was holding. The thread was trustworthy because the one who gave it to her was trustworthy. Let me ask you, whose thread are you holding today? Whose storyline is in your hands? Is it God's storyline or is it yours? Are you afraid of where following him may take you if you follow him? Listen, if your trust is in Jesus today, not as a prophet, not as a good man leading you to a good life, but as the Son of God come to rescue you by his death and resurrection, you don't have to be afraid. I mean, look at Jesus' storyline. The message of the gospel is that Jesus' storyline becomes yours if you follow him. I mean, doesn't Paul write in the end, if we'll follow him, he will lead us in triumph. Doesn't Paul say if we follow him, we're more than conquerors. Praise be to God who gives us the victory who through, not us, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It may look today. It might. Looks for me sometimes. My threads lead me to a dead end where the way forward may crush me. So don't go backwards today. Even if you feel like you're going roundabout, you're not. I know, I know some of you are facing massive problems, massive discouragement in your marriage, your business, with your kids. I know you are. Don't quit. Don't go backwards. There's nothing back there for you. Nothing. Keep holding the line. And when you do, you're going towards God's heart for you. And along the way, you get to rescue others. See, the grandmother's plan for Irene wasn't just about her safety, was it? No, it was about rescuing someone else trapped by evil. And to do that, Irene had to go forward. And you've got to go forward today and begin tearing down that wall in front of you, rock by rock. And whenever Jesus asks you, anyone, to do something, hear me, it's nothing that he himself hasn't already done. Because when he asked these disciples to leave their father's nets, he was only asking them to do the very thing he had already done. He already left his father's home, hadn't he? He already left a fortune in heaven 
to come to earth to bring his story into their lives. I mean, think of the hymn. I love this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's us. And one day, hear me, if your story is his, and if his threat is yours, you will follow him even through death into his arms. And if his threat will hold you through death, surely it's enough to hold you through this life as well.